Well, we're going to be covering a lot of ground today as we, uh, as we look at the Song of Solomon. How many of you have ever studied the Song of Solomon? Yeah. Well, let me introduce you to it. Okay. Some things we know about the Song of Songs, and the, really the Song of Songs is what uh, is official title in the Old Testament for the Song of Solomon. It was his opus, his uh, masterpiece. And what we do know about the Song of Songs, obviously, it's in the Bible. And it's Old Testament canon, thus inerrant. So as we look at the Song of Solomon, we're going to look at it 90% wise from a totally relational viewpoint. And as we go get into a little bit of the language on it, you'll see that. Also, is only one of two books in the Old Testament that does not directly mention the name God. However, towards the end in chapter 8, it does mention Yah, which could be translated as an abbreviation for Jehovah. But that's the only place. That's in 8.6. Also, the song, of course, was written by King Solomon. And the song is a love song. It's romance poetry. So, as we look at the Song of Solomon, you may have asked yourself, like, like I did, why on earth is it in the Bible? Have you wondered that? Why is it there? How did the Old Testament scholars, how did they render this Old Testament canon, uh, part of the Old Testament well, there are three reasons. One of them, it presents an example of what a godly marriage should be. That's number one. Number two, more indirectly, although the language is there and supports it, that it's an illustration of the relationship between Yahweh and Israel. And in more indirect sense, because Solomon wrote this way before the church age started, uh, it presents an illustration of the relationship of Christ and the church. And if you are a student of Romans and look at Romans chapter 9 through 11, it seems like the church really is uh, attached to Israel. And if you look at Isaiah in particular and also Jeremiah, you will see that there is a remnant, a promise of a remnant of the house of Israel. And that is amalgamated or combined with the church. So as the church goes on, the church in many ways is Israel, but the church does not replace Israel. The church is part of Israel. But that's another story for a different time. So we're going to try to concentrate on the song. But that, those are three reasons. The basic outline of the Song of Solomon is, first of all, the betrothal period. Uh, where you have it between 1, 1 and, and about chapter 3, verse 5, is where she's kind of musing over what's going to happen in the, the, during the wedding and after the wedding. And so she is fixating on her beloved. And then her beloved is fixated on her. And it talks about his language to her, which we will get into in just a little bit. And then... Uh, uh, this follows a typical uh, Jewish wedding format. And what that means 
is that the, it, during the betrothal period, they actually, at the start of the betrothal, they say their vows to each other. So they are essentially married, even during the betrothal period. What happens is, is that he goes away for a while, builds up a house, and in this case, he's building up a garden as well. And he's prepared that for her, so that after a period of time, it's usually about a year, the groom will come back with a big procession and pick up the bride. The bride will follow the groom to his house. And so the bride gets along over her attendants and her maids of honor and all that stuff. And there's a big parade back to his house where they have a banqueting hall set up. Uh, maybe a big room in his, his father's house or somewhere around there. And they have a feast, a wedding feast. And then they, uh, they become married. The relationship, uh, so anyway, that in, in part C there, third when the groom does come and behold, he comes, he enters with his procession and he beholds the bride. And then you have the wedding in 416 to 5.1. And then you have the relationship after the wedding. And here's where it kind of falls from the ideal. Now what Solomon's doing, well, we'll quickly go there. Solomon is patterning. His relation, this relationship between this bride and groom, whether it be himself and another lady, another woman, or he's talking about some king and another woman, uh, he tries to bring the ideal of Eden before the fall. But then, after the wedding, it kind of goes back to a different pattern. It goes back more to a pattern of Israel, and we'll, get, we'll explore that too, where it talks about a, a, a mini-separation where the wife spurns the, the husband for a little bit. And then there's reconciliation and there's resolution. And that finishes up uh, the end of chapter 8. So to understand then where we're coming from in the Song of Solomon, we need to go back a bit. So we're going to explore for a short time the Garden of Eden. So if you would stand and we'll turn to Genesis chapter 2 verse 8. And this is a, a, a very familiar passage. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and a tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. Father God, as we look into studying your word, as we look at this uh, pre-fall period, and as we look at the ideals set up in the Song of, Song of Solomon, Lord, that we would see these things. Lord, that, that we would ask ourselves, are we that person, and can we be that person, and how are you going to help us to be the person that we see presented in the Song of Solomon, or the people, the husband and the wife? Lord, just grant us the grace uh, to live out your gospel and look at these ideals. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, as we look at the Garden of Eden then, uh, the place was self-sufficient, completely self-sufficient, delightful. 
And we see that it was every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food was there. And a question of all questions is that there is also the tree of the nausea, good and evil. And you kind of wonder why God planted that tree. Why would God plant a tree of the knowledge of evil? And, and I don't have an answer for you. It's there. It was part of God's plan. And it could be that God, in his infinite past, of course, had this all set up. And in his goodness, this, he, was, he was going to give an opportunity to display his mercy through judgment, as we'll see in a little bit here. Now the man, we, we look at the people, we look at the place quickly here, uh, well-watered, pleasant, and we go to the man. So we look at Genesis 2, 7. It said, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Uh, it could be, now the word Adam is also another word for man. The, the word ish is the Hebrew word for man. But Adam also is another one. And what Adam really means is ruddy or red. So it could be that Adam was made from red clay. I don't know. And, uh, and so Adam does mean red or ruddy. The Lord God took the man and he put him in a garden of Eden and gave him a job. He was to work it and keep it. He was to till the ground. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. And then the Lord God said, Is it not good that man should be alone? I will make him a helper fit for him. So the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast in the field. But Adam was not, but for Adam was not found a helper fit for him. And you can imagine, if you read between the lines in creation, God would make an elephant and God said, well, that's great, dear, uh, great God, you have this long trunk and that's pretty funny. And, but it can't talk very well. I, I, can't, I can't communicate with it. So he made all the other animals and it was pretty much the same. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed in its place with flesh. And the rib that God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, in Genesis 2.23, we don't quite get the emphatic on this. We read it kind of deadpan, and the man said, At last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It doesn't get the Hebrew context of excitement like you and I would feel. We would go, what have you done? Look at this. You mean this from a rib? From a rib? And I mentioned Adam walked all around her, looking at her, and she was perfect. Perfect. This is the perfect one. And, and in the language it says, at last. At last. Finally, here's someone I can talk to. And so he was just excited and almost beside himself saying, why, this is, this is bone on my bone. This is flesh on my flesh. And so, the, and again, he says, she should become a woman because she's taken out a man. Really what he is talking about is a female man. 
And so we, we don't know what language Adam spoke. Probably wasn't Hebrew. And so, but whatever language he had, and if you think it was kind of remarkable, here Adam was only a few days old, he can talk, carry on a full conversation. That's, that's, that's remarkable when you think about it. I don't know if, I, I would imagine God just put all that in his memory. And he woke up and he could talk. And that, that's kind of amazing in itself. So the woman was made from the bone and the flesh of the man, and she was given the task to help the man. So she's supposed to help till and help tend and, and however ways that he could help her. And kind of a side note here, I've kind of, I've kind of noticed uh, throughout the congregation here, uh, I've got to know a lot of you very well, and I am amazed at how compatible the, uh, the husband and wife couples are in this church, how compatible they are with each other. And it, it just goes to show, and we will talk about this quite a bit here in a little bit, how when I married Laura, for example, God had wired her for me, and God had wired me for her. And it's the same. I, I look and I, I see Gary and Pat, and I see uh, BJ and uh, Kayleen, and, and I see Jerry and Judy, and I, I see this all over. Uh, Jerry and Betsy, all of you, you're wired for each other. And that is, that is an amazing thing to see that. Okay, now the problem. It's always problems. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast in the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So what happened? He started driving a wedge, a wedge of doubt. Trying to get at the relationship not only with a man and a woman, but more in particular at this point, the man and a woman and God. So he's driving in this wedge of doubt. And that's, that's exactly how he works. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is made in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, the woman did not get the command directly from God. Adam did. It was Adam's job to teach the woman these commandments. And she added, you shall not touch it. And I think already there were seeds of doubt forming in her mind. And, and Satan kind of knew this. We don't know how many days they spit in the age of innocence. Could have been a few years. Could have been a few days. Don't know. It doesn't say. But as we read on here, the serpent said, For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and it was a light to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave some to her husband with her, and he ate. Thus, the relationship between a man and a woman was also damaged. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And before the loss, it says that both he and his wife were naked and not ashamed. Now, there are a lot of scholars that that tried to explain this, thinking that maybe they had some special 
aura around them. I think what it was was that they they were they were naked, they were without clothes, but they had pure minds. They did not they weren't burdened or bugged with any kind of lustful thoughts. And I said, can you imagine what that would be like? Not to be plagued with that kind of thing. But in Genesis 3, 7, it said, But the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves coverings. Thus the relationship between a man and a woman was damaged because before there was no, there were no hiding. Now they're starting to shield themselves from one another. So we would think, well, that's kind of a mark of decency with them, though. It was a mark of shame and division because before they were, they had totally clean minds. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God. And they hid amongst the trees of the garden. But the God, Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I have commanded you not to eat? You notice here the man never emits guilt. Neither does the woman. They blame Shep. They said, well, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So you have a division between God and the husband and wife. Consequences, and these are only some of the consequences. I think when they sinned, the whole world fell into sin. Uh, before this point, um, it looks like there were no animals. All the animals just ate of the of the herbs of the field, even the lions. And it wasn't. There were no carnivores until the fall. And that's another story, and it would take some research to really dig into that. So to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So we see that very much today, the woman's desire to take charge and to... Assert the authority that God gave men. And so we see that uh, a lot today. But we also see a domination of men uh, ruling with a fist of iron sometimes. And because that was the curse, it was part of the curse. And to Adam, he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring up to you, and shall you eat the plants of the field. Also, it says, by the sweat of your face, in Genesis 3.19, you shall eat blood too. You return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For 
you are dust, and the dust you shall return. So it was eventual death for both. And then finally they were expelled from the Garden of Eden. It says, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword to turn every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now we get to the Song of Solomon. So finally, one of the overtones of the Song of Solomon, the main, one of the main themes besides the husband and wife is the setting. And so we look at the setting, we'll look at the husband and wife, and we'll look at a return to Eden. And this is what Solomon is, is where he's really coming from. First of all, we have a nearly ideal relationship that exists between the man and the woman, which counters the effect of the fall. So if we look at the Song of Solomon, and I'm going to go through this pretty quickly, um, we're going to see him lifting up his ideal bride and, and his desire for her. For in Song 115, he says, Behold, you're beautiful, my love. Behold, you're beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Now, the word, it's interesting, the Hebrew word that he uses for beloved is a different word than she uses. He uses the word riot, which means uh, female companion. So that may be a girlfriend. It may be a betrothed woman. It may be his wife. So he uses riot for almost all the way through the Song of Solomon. If you see beloved, you'll see the word, you'll see the name riot. And all except for uh, Songs 410, and we'll get into it in a little bit. 410, he shifts over to another word. And so in Songs 2-2, he says, A lily as a lily among brambles, so is my love among young women. So she is altogether beautiful. And she alone. And I think we men need to take a look at this really carefully because we should view our wives as lilies men and we should view all the rest of the ladies as thorns now we have a lot of uh, this, this church we have our share of pretty ladies here I think uh, all of you are pretty actually and uh, but you're thorns to me in relation, in comparison to my wife. And every husband ought to say that because we have a treasure from God that we're supposed to take care of. We're supposed to nurture. And I'll get into that more in a minute. She is delightful to him. In Psalm 116, Behold, you're beautiful, my beloved. Truly delightful. Our couch is green. Now, the word green here is the Hebrew word for luscious. So the, you, again, we're, we're approaching a garden setting. And so if you can imagine the most luscious garden, uh, kind of like maybe Kayleen's dad, mom have this garden that's, I know some of you have been out there. I, I, I thoroughly enjoy it. That's, that's, a, that's a delight to the eyes. But if you can take that and Multiply it maybe a few times. You get the Garden of Eden. And this is what Solomon is after. And so he's making this garden. And so the couch or the, the place where they lay down is just lush. Just 
green all over the place and flowers and lilies and all that kind of thing. And so her voice is sweet. So we're going through and we're looking at all these things that are delightful to him. And he says, Oh, my dove, but in the clefts of the rock. And this is song, song 2.14. Uh, the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. She is flawless in his sight. In song 4.7, you're altogether beautiful. You're altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. She has captivated, or she has captivated his heart. And Song 4 9 says, You have enraptured me. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. Now, she is not his sister, no way form, but he's addressing her as the closeness of a close relative. So here he's going highly relational, much more relational than the physical aspects of marriage. He's going, he desires her deep intimacy as far as relations go. As far as, it's, it's like walking hand in hand along a beautiful beach or just doing things together. That's what he's, uh, what he's thinking about here and what he values. And... Uh, said her intimacy is beautiful. He uses a word doty here, which connotes relational intimacy. And this is the one I was telling you about in Song 410. He says, how beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice? So he's designed her in this way. Her presence is a fragrance. He says, your lips, in Song 411, says, your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. It's a freshness. Now, it's referring to probably, uh, Lebanon is known, it was known at that time for the cypress and for their cedars. And so, if you've ever smelled that western red cedar, and that really sweet, kind of subtle smell, that's, that's what he's after here, I think. She has integrity. In Song uh, 6, 9, and 10, My dove, my perfect one, is the only one. The only one of her mother, pure to her, who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed. The queen and concubines also, and they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun? Awesome is an army with banners. And then she talks about in uh, herself in Song 1-7. She says, tell me who my soul loves, where you pass your flock, where you make... It lie down at night. For why should I be one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? So this is from her. What she's referring to, uh, most scholars think, is the reference in Genesis 38 where Tamar, whose husband died and she had no children, kept bugging her father-in-law, Judah, to give her a husband. And Judah kept saying, wait wait and she was getting on in years and she was tired of waiting so she went to a, uh, a shepherd's camp disguised herself as a prostitute and Judah went into her and she had a child by Judah and so she is the, the, the lady here in 
the Song of Songs just says, I am not like this person. I have integrity. I am not going to even in any way approach this. Uh, so she is one who has high integrity and high, high values. Her character then is impeccable. In Song 1, 4, it says, Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Now you have to realize that she's thinking about this. This hasn't happened yet. Uh, the wedding is not happening until uh, chapter 4 and 5. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. And rightly do they love you. My dove, my perfect one, and now this is him talking, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young woman saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines also, and they praised her. She is also like a fruitful garden. And again, we have to look at this not only in a, in, in a physical sense, but we're talking about relational fruit. So that when we enjoy our wives, we enjoy, we should be enjoying the relationship, right? We should be enjoying the relationship and the fruit from that. And the companionship and the conversing of ideas and the reading of scripture and talking even about theology and, and discussing all those things and, and getting feedback. And not only that, just, just, just plain enjoying. And so he said, a garden locked up is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Now, this could be referring to the Garden of Eden, who was close to Adam and Eve. Uh, your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates, all the choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon. But all the trees are frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all the choice spices. A garden fountain, a well of living water, and the flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, blow upon your garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden to eat its choicest fruits. And so she now is lifting him up as the ideal husband and desires her. And so we're going to look from her viewpoint now. And throughout the Song of Solomon, she uses the word doti, which means a desire, a beloved who desires intimate relationships. So she is desires him. She desires his nearness to her. And we, we get that connotation more um, from the Septuagint. Now, Septuagint was the uh, Greek version of the Old Testament that was written in Alexandria, Egypt, about 300 B.C., and what's particularly valuable about the Septuagint is we see how the Hebrew is rendered in Greek and what Greek words were used. And that kind of gives us a clue of how they saw that verse and added an added perspective. And so what we see is someone who desires close intimacy is the word doti. And so she says, let me, him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your nearness is better than, it's better than wine. And she talks about his character being fragrant. It's kind of interesting how that happens. So your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil pulled up, poured out. 
Therefore, the virgins love you or they admire you. They admire the character of Solomon. Also, don't forget, he was also anointed king. And so this plays into it as the anointed king. It also plays into it as a representation of Yahweh. Uh, So the overtones are there. And then she she feels safe for her as uh, she feels safe for uh, for, <laughs> for he is her protector. And Song two to three says, "As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With a great delight, I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste." And so I know that most ladies, one of the things they look for in a husband is will he be able to protect me? Will I be safe? Will I feel safe with this person? And he fits that. Also, he is king. Song 1 forces, draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you, and we will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. And this may be referring also to her as well as to him. And then here's another kind of a peculiar thing. This is his arrival to pick up his bride. And you look at it and you go, this, this is a little bit exaggerated. It says, Who, what is that coming out from the wilderness? Like columns of smoke, perfume of myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant. So he's arriving in a whirlwind, but not only is he arriving in a whirlwind, he's arriving in a carriage set up with poles. And many scholars think this is, this is symbolic of the Ark of the Covenant. And so we have the Ark of the Covenant of Promise, and we have the leader Solomon representing, in many ways, Yahweh, and you, you shouldn't really be bothered by that because in a marriage relationship, we men represent Christ. So we'll, as we get into Ephesians here in a short period, where we talk about the husband to the wife in their relationship is Christ to the church. To realize that we are in some ways Christ types. Okay. In a very humble sense, because there's no way I can measure up and live a sinless life. But that's, we represent that. And so Solomon is a Christ type here, a Yahweh type. Then she talks about him being handsome in Song 510. My beloved is radiant and ready, distinguished among 10,000. So not only is he handsome, he's also distinguished. He is mighty. His head in Song 5, 11, 12, and 13, his head is the finest colt. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like dove's eyes beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. pool. His cheeks are like the bit of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping in liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choices of cedars. So he is altogether desirable in Song 5.16. His mouth is most sweet, and he's altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. So his mouth is sweet, probably, you know, from, you know, she enjoys his kiss. 
But also, I think his speech as well, that his, his talk is, is desirable. So he's a man of integrity. Psalm 1-3, your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out, therefore the virgins love you. Now we get to the garden. So the Garden of Eden is beautiful. In Psalm 7, 12, it says, Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance. Beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. It is bountiful. In Psalm 116, it says, Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green or luscious. And we've already covered that verse. 211, For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flower appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. And the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beloved one, and come away. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that pour the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. Song 5.1, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh and my spice. I ate my honeycomb and my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And then others say, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Now, this is pretty much representative of the marriage banquet. My beloved has gone down to his garden to the bed of spices to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved as my beloved is mine. He gazes upon the lilies. The mandrakes give their fourth fragrance, and we've read that too, beside our doors with all choice fruits, new as well as old, of which I have laid up for you. So we can see then that it was made by Solomon as we look at the last part of 713 there. The Song of Solomon then represents a return to a luscious Eden, a return of Adam and Eve in their relationship with each other, a pure relationship, at least almost. Now, the Song of Solomon also represents the relationship between Yahweh and Israel. Now we're going to get into how we feel that is true. First of all, and this is kind of a weak one, but it's there. It says, my beloved, my beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Now, henna is also the same word for ransom. And so this may be the, a hinting of ransom for what? Is this a redeemer or is it just henna? Is there because henna is, I don't know what the henna flower looks like, how pretty it is. I think it's a yellow blossom, isn't it? I don't know. I think it's yellow. But the vineyards of Engedi, uh, I almost made it to Engedi last time I was in Israel. But we, we got to the lower part of the valley, but we couldn't go up because they had a flash flood warning. And Israel is much like Texas and other places. It starts raining, and you could have a flash flood within minutes. And so they didn't want us up there. But I understand, I've seen pictures of Engedi, uh, where it's a beautiful oasis. It's, just a, it's kind of set in a, in a bunch of rock. It's, it's in the middle of a desert, literally. I mean, just bare rock. You wouldn't even know it was there unless you walked up and, and found this. 
and there's a little spring there, and it's just a luscious kind of garden. And so the reference, I think, here, because that was one of David's strongholds, there could be a, a, a tie to the, because the son of promise, Christ, came through the line of Solomon. And so there could be a tie there. But there's a much stronger tie in Song 3.6, where it says, What is the coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powers of a merchant? Behold is the litter of Solomon. Around it are sixty mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with a sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its post of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple, and its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Now, this is a closer tie. This is not, even for a king, not an ordinary possession, not with columns of smoke. So there's a, there's a pretty close tie here between this and the Shekinah glory, where as we read in Exodus and we read in, um, in Numbers, that there was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night as the house of Israel moved across uh, the wilderness. And so you have that. And then you also have this canopy, again, somewhat reminiscent of the ark and the possession with the ark and the tabernacle and all that goes that went with it before the ark had a resting place in the temple. And then there's a pattern of the rebellion. And this doesn't quite fit a love song. So this is what, this is another strong tie. Is that after they're married, she kind of spurns them a little bit. As we read in Psalm 5-2, she says, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. But I have put off my garment, how could I put it on? I had bathed my feet, how could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh. My fingers were liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when, I, when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about the city. They beat me, they bruised me. They took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. So we see here a pattern uh, of Israel rebelling against Yahweh. And then Yahweh using other nations or other peoples to chastise Israel. And so this happens here. Otherwise, this really doesn't fit in a love poem. Because it's not idealistic. This is her spurning him to a degree. Not wanting to be bothered to get up. And he leaves her a fragrance on the door handle. He, leaves, he puts myrrh on the door handle as a sign of his love to her. So she sees that, changes her mind, but it's too late. And so then, now there's a separation, there's a little rift between her and her husband now. 
But that that gets reconciled later on as we see that she seeks him out. She goes to his garden, they meet, they reconcile, and their love is restored. And that's exactly what is going to happen to Israel. That's exactly what's going to happen to the church. A parallel passage then is in Isaiah 5.1. It says, Let me sing for my beloved, my love, my love song concerning this vineyard. Now, the word for beloved is, again, the word doti, uh, the intimate companion. So let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes or sour grapes. And now all inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard? I have not done in it. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild or sour grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it waste, and it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns will grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no more rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel." And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And then as we look at later on, Isaiah, of course, talks much of it talks about the restoration of Israel. Another parallel passage or supportive passage is in Hosea. Now, how many have ever done a study of Hosea? Okay, you know that Hosea was commanded by God to take a wife of prostitution. So he took Gomer, and he had uh, some children that God named, and we will get to it in a little bit here. But what what happened was that Gomer left, and then God commanded Hosea to go and purchase Gomer back to him. And so the whole model of Gomer is the restoration of Israel, the whole model of Hosea. So if we look at the start of Hosea, um, this is a proclamation. It said, In that day, declares the Lord, I will call, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, or the false gods that a lot of Israel were worshiping at that time. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. And they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I would betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. In that day I will answer, declares the Lord. And I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy and no mercy. 
And that was, uh, they had a, a daughter, and God had Hosea call her no mercy, because he's not going to have any mercy in Israel for the short time. And then later on, uh, a son was born, and so I want you to name your son, not my people. And so we had, can you imagine being grown up with names like that? And, and so that's why he says, I will have mercy then on no mercy. And I will say no I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he will say, you are my God. And so this is uh, an example of the restoration that we're going to see of the house of Israel and also uh, a full glorification of the church body. So we're going to get into that now. So we're now we're going to Ephesians 5.22. And we're going to look at the parallel here. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as a church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the, with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does a church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh, as it says in Genesis. This mystery is profound, and I am speaking, I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, that each one of you love his wife as himself, and let his wife see that she respects her husband. So the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And as a church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands. So husbands are to love their wives as Christ of the church in the following ways. Christ gave himself up to the church. Should we be willing to give ourselves up for our wives? And I say, yes. That the church should be set apart or sanctified. Husbands need to sanctify their wives. In other words, we need to help our wives be a helper. But it's more than that. We have the responsibility, men, to see... We're going to eventually answer for our wives' spirituality. Did you know that? We as men are to present our wife without spot or wrinkle to Christ. That's a heady responsibility. And yet, we're commanded to do that. We're commanded to present our wives to Christ as Christ presents the church to God. And so, we need to set an example in that way. We need to regard our wife as a lily among thorns. We need to not be distracted. Uh, and I know today we are inundated from anything from easy to get to pornography to the Seattle Seahawks cheerleaders. And so we need to filter that out. We need to to be captivated to the wife of our youth. Furthermore, 
the wife needs to respect her husband and needs to be able to see him, in him, the qualities of the groom of Song of Solomon. That's a heady thing to measure up to. As we looked at all the things that she lifts him up for, can we say the same? Can we say that we are men of God and that our wives look up to us? We should be, as we grow in the Lord, we should be able to do that. We should be able to be examples. In conclusion, then, I've got a heading called Desiring God and some questions. So, what would our relationship with Christ be like? If we apply the same degree of relational intensity shown in the Song of Solomon. So what if we anticipated the return of Christ, like we anticipate the return of our wives as your wives are on a trip somewhere, and we long for her to return, or the husband is off on a trip and the wife is longing for his return? Can we say that about Christ Now, I know some of you are single, and uh, some of you have lost your husband or your wife. And so, in that case, you know, you can look directly to Christ and anticipate the return. Or perhaps you're longing for the return of your children or your grandkids. I know the delight of of Laura's eyes now are our two granddaughters. And, uh, And the Lord just lights up when they come. I'm sure that's pretty common. And, uh... To see that that relationship there, and to value Christ in the in the same way, and it says in Corinthians thirteen thirteen, now abide hope, love, faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love, this agape, this godly love that we would have. Second, what would our marriages look like if we follow the principles found in the Song of Solomon and Ephesians five? Would it closely resemble Adam and Eve in their innocence, a spiritual Eden? And we can get close. We, we still have the mind battles, and we'll have that until we get glorified. But we can try. We can get close. And it would be like Psalm 8, 6. It says, Set me a seal upon your heart and a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. And I would charge you, young people, as you're looking for a a husband and a wife, look for these qualities and realize that if you're attracted to someone who is outside of Christ, that they will never fulfill it unless they become born again. They will never attain these deep qualities. Because the Spirit of God's not in them. Only by the Spirit of God can we do this. And so, as you're looking for your future husband or future wife, look to these qualities. Look to them and say, are they, do they measure up? And, and of course, bathe it with prayer. But to look, is my, is my the person that I like, could they fulfill the qualities of the Song of Solomon? What would our local church body be like if we loved each other as those who encourage a bride and groom? Now, we didn't say much about the others, but it's in there. And they're talking about loving Solomon 
for his qualities and loving the wife for her qualities. And so there's this, there's this body of support there. And so we have this, this inner church relationship, don't we? We have a body of Christ here where we're all functioning. And as, we, as our church grows and we grow into all these ministry programs where we're able to use all of our spiritual gifts, I long to see when we will just be so close and in some ways, a, a, a degree of church body intimacy that we would say, as in Second Corinthians five fifteen to sixteen, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to other, a fragrance from life to life. But who is sufficient for these things? And so, of course, this carries on into the rest of of 2 Corinthians where Paul is talking about uh, the importance of living out the gospel. And that are we a fragrance? Even to those who are perishing, that we may win them. Are we a a lovely fragrance like the bride and groom were? Finally, according to my title, are the vines in bloom? So what did I mean by that? Songs 2.13, the fig ripens, the tree ripens its figs. The vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. The parallel to that is Christ calling us. And so the church is like a blooming vine. And so there's a promise of relational fruit. That promise will be realized in Revelation twenty two seventeen when it comes to pass, the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the water or let the one who desires to take the water of life without Pete, without price. And so we are invited, right? We are longing, looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We'll be united with Christ in that extreme intimacy, that relational intimacy, that closeness. And so we long for that. We look forward to that. And we live out our lives to express that, to express the hope that we have of being restored to this Garden of Eden relationship with each other and with with our God. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for your, your love for us and for all you do for us. Lord God, I just pray that if there's anybody here who's outside of Christ, that they would consider these things and consider what a beautiful thing it is to follow you. What a beautiful relational thing to look to God who longs for us to be close to him. Lord, as we pray, as we meditate, as we read your word, uh, just help that all to be realized. In Jesus' name we pray. Yeah.